the film we're about to talk about today bears no relation at all to real events or real people. You <laughs> <laughs> can't see the sheer amount of winking, twitching I'm doing right now. Tony Blair never got cugged. <laughs> <laughs> never in his life, man. He's uncockable. Everything else. Well, be there's the episode title right there, the uncockable. <laughs> All right, uh, should we start? Yeah, 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 I'm, yep. I'm already rolling. I'm going. Opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives, I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. What's it? Well, we know who the hard left are, who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing. The hard left agenda, printing money, nationalization without compensation, that sort of hard left wing position. Hard left, it's the hard left, 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 hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, 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 Welcome to Real Politic. I'm Jack. I don't currently have a Twitter account, so just follow from follow the Real Politic one at RP Core Core with a P, you know, uh, like Apple Core, Intel, Apple Core the company, not an Apple Core. Which is <laughs> yeah, that was very. That was more confusing than the original. The Beatles were doing a pun, man. It was a very funny joke. But anyway, okay. uh, <laughs> yeah, follow RP Core Intel as an in international division. Yeah, I'm joined by my co-host, Yaya Rice, in America. Yeah, hello. And Geraint, up in Scotland. Hello. And we have the extremely... I'm still looking for the fucking film on my TV. I'm just, like, scrolling through film after film. Like, <laughs> where is it? And we're joined by our extremely special guests from the Michael and Us podcast, which is great. Everyone should check it out. It's, like, basically been running the exact same time as real politic and we've over time touched on some of the same material you know in the cinematic world it's great we've got the two hosts of that show luke savage who's previously been on the show and was great what's up glad to be back great to have you luke and as well for his first time on real politic it is the host of the important cinema club another towering podcast on co-host i should say but another towering podcast in the online film community to be honest i don't really listen to that many film podcasts but who needs to when you've got the important cinema club and its host (laughs) will sloan 
thank you. Towering podcast of the online film community sounds like a backhanded compliment, but I'll take it. <laughs> like I say, I just I was like, oh shit, what other film podcast do I listen to? I can compare this to. Film comment is pretty good. Our friends over here do a podcast called Film Chat, which I like. But yeah, yours. Listen, is I don't want to hear about that stuff. I'm the only one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yours is definitely up there, man. Believe me. Well, yours is kind of it really stands out from the pack in those ones I just mentioned because it doesn't actually have film in the title <laughs> yes i've been wanting to do a kind of crossover bringing both of these guys from their you know extended universe into ours so these guys like finally <laughs> these characters and the last podcast standing wins <laughs> finally sloan and savage can close coexist with such luminaries as, as mike gapes and his uh, his troublesome <laughs> senior aide, Mr. Richard Miller. But yeah, we're talking today about a film that appeals to real politic and to Michael and us on a number of levels. Because, I mean, it's a film, so there's lots of <laughs> film-related levels that are drawing us in. However, there's also a number of political levels that this film interests us on because this is a thinly veiled portrait of our hero Mr. Tony Blair and his noble crusade to liberate Iraq and uh, create ISIS today the film that we're discussing is Mr. Roman Polanski's The Ghost Writer based on the novel by Robert Harris friend of Polanski friend of Blair or at least he was a friend of Blair until they fell out, reportedly, over the Iraq war. It sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this film. film would suggest that. I don't know, man. Seems <laughs> seems like bullshit to me. Uh, can I ask, uh, who, who is this Roman Polanski fellow? I couldn't find any information about him. Like, what, what's, what's his story? Good guy? I mean, I, I assume so. I enjoyed this movie so much, I would love to know more about this fellow. Well, he seems to have real knack for a kind of tightly paced thriller. But Will, are you saying that you've never um, given a film called uh, Bitter Moon a uh, five-star rating? Uh, uh, oh, I, I have seen Bitter Moon more than once. <laughs> There's one part in particular that Will is very fond of. I, 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 I'm going to say right now, I, I'm, I got to go because I was under the impression that we were spending two hours talking about Mike Gapes. And I wouldn't have come if I thought we were talking about, you know, this garbage. Well, he's not quite got into cinema yet. The audio drama is perhaps a touchstone to a move onto the big screen of the Gapes. But we'll have to wait till Hollywood comes calling to uh, the producers of Gapecast, um, whoever they are. So this film came out in 2010. It just says The Ghost on screen, but I just put it on. I guess that was the name of the novel, wasn't it? The Ghost? I think that's the UK title, or it's the title in most parts of the world. They call it The Ghost Writer in America, I guess, because audiences <laughs> thought it might be a horror movie. I don't know. Right. Like, everyone going expecting something like, oh man, this is going to be like Rosemary's Baby Part 2. It's like that, it's Where like are that the ghosts? When, it's like that thing when they were naming the first Harry Potter book, and yeah. for some right. reason in the United States, it's uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone because they think the word philosopher is like 
too sophisticated for American audiences. <laughs> they or don't have any of that pansy ass European <laughs> philosophy shit in the good old United States. I've got to be honest. I think the film would actually be better if it was in most respects exactly the same, but the not Tony Blair character was like actually haunted by a visible ghost of not Dr. David Kelly. <laughs> Justify the, the, the title as well. You know? A troop of Iraqi children following him about wherever he goes. Nobody else can see them. Or like everyone else can see them, but he can't. He's just like, no, what? I did nothing wrong. There's no large conga line of ghostly children following me. Would explain <laughs> some of Pierce Brosnan's sort of agitated line readings towards the end as well. <laughs> Speaking of Pierce Brosnan, can I ask you guys if you prefer him as Tony Blair or as Jerry Adams? <laughs> I think Adams it, it, has It the shows edge. his versatility, doesn't it? That he can play both. <laughs> There's not many people that can say that. Um, I want to know who they're going to cast him as next. So I want to see need... Pierce Brosnan does like Fidel Castro or something. Yeah, finish the trilogy for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys on Michael and us, you've talked about the films of Peter Morgan, his political dramas, and I think if Michael Sheen can't do the next one, it should be a film about the negotiations that ended the Northern Irish Troubles. But Pierce Brosnan plays both Tony Blair and Jerry Adams. <laughs> And like it could be like Alec Guinness in uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets, where he plays like nine characters. So you've also got Pierce Brosnan as like Bill Clinton and uh, Jeffrey Epstein and like all the people who are you know operating in that world. And you know, and then also speaking of Epstein, making just a, a verbal note to get to how much I think the uh, Cherie Blair character is like Ghislaine Maxwell in this film. But um, yeah. Like, <laughs> this is, um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Someone go next. <laughs> Can I just say before we get into it that I am always so delighted when I see Pierce Brosnan on screen. I realized watching this movie again what a comforting presence he is for me. I don't necessarily think he's a great or oftentimes even good actor, but there's he has a kind of bozo charm to him. Yeah. I don't know, maybe it's just because he takes me back to a very special place in my childhood. I am always up for a Pierce Brosnan performance. And this is probably the best performance I've seen him give, but I did particularly like him in The Foreigner, where he played Jerry Adams uh, under <laughs> another name. And I thought that movie had some really prime Brosnan overacting in it. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, this is, easy. This is his best movie, apart from The Obvious, which is when he plays the... Mrs. Doubtfire, the, the yeah, guy what who talks Mrs. Aaron, Doubtfire. Aaron. Sorry, let me let me let me deliver that line again. <laughs> <laughs> when he when he plays it, the I don't know the sexy family destroyer in Mrs. Doubtfire, who ruins Robin Williams' marriage. <laughs> well, I saw him in that film Urge recently, where he is he like a big oh, that film wasn't very good so i can't remember too much about it but i think like he plays the guy who sorts all the rich people out with like the psychedelic drugs but then fuck oh them. i know the one you're talking about pierce brosnan has had kind of a run of like direct-to-video exploitation movies lately he's, he's <laughs> kind of like a nicholas cage figure now which i entirely approve of man time really does come for us all doesn't it this guy is this guy played james bond and he's doing the seagal route he's, he's gonna just be he's gonna 
going to do what, like, well, where are these films being made? Like, are these Eastern <laughs> Europeans straight to DVD or have we not reached that level of uh, I assume, yet? Well, I saw The November Man and that definitely was an Eastern European movie. That one could have starred Steven Seagal. <laughs> you know what I love? I love the scene in every Pierce Brosnan action movie, not to get us too far off, but in every Pierce Brosnan action movie, there's a scene where he gets, like, hurt real bad and he goes, like he makes that sound and i i am in heaven whenever he does that that's like when spike lee does his dolly tracking shot it's just you know a a great artist's trademark well there's there's that random clip on youtube that i'm a fan of at least two just kind of completely out of context pierce brosnan clips that are on youtube there's one where he for some reason just comes out and says happy new year arms outstretched I tweet that about once a year on New Year's Eve, and it never it never does the numbers. But you know, sometimes it's about you know quality, not quantity. But the other one is that scene from just some shitty '80s movie where he's talking to somebody, and then some woman says something to him, and he just goes, "Then maybe you shouldn't be living here." Yeah, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but that's that's sort of the crux of it. I don't think I've seen that one, but yeah, I'm just looking at his filmography, and I guess he got some awards for a film called The Matador in 2005, but aside from that, his best post-Bond films do seem to be The Ghost Writer and The Foreigner. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I guess like his recent director, VOD Turn, auteurs of the stature of Polanski, just aren't coming calling these days for whatever reason it's kind of bad because at least nicholas cage gets auteurs whose careers are similarly down on their luck as as his is (laughs) (laughs) well i was gonna say we were you know musing about what would it be like if this film was about literal ghosts but you know my reaction upon seeing it again is that it is actually much more fantastical than it would be if it actually involved the supernatural because it's a film that from its opening scenes would have us believe that there's a functioning international order, that Mm. there is some kind of successor labor government in the UK where somehow a figure that is very obviously supposed to be Robin Cook, a sort of like (laughs) Robin Cook that was more directly hostile to Blair, because Robin Cook very famously and courageously resigned over the Iraq war. But if you go back and watch that famous speech in Parliament, he's very clear that he's not like starting a revolt against Blair or whatever. So it's asking us to envision a different Robin Cook a Robin and a different... Cook who never got murdered by Alistair Campbell. <laughs> and also one where Gordon Brown or somebody like him is presiding over a government that is complying with like some international criminal court order to prosecute the former <laughs> British prime minister like from the same party. So it's like we've skipped Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband. We're in a universe where Jeremy Corbyn is the prime minister, uh, except it's like 2009 or something. Uh, yeah, it's strange because I guess, yeah, this would be... If the film came out in 2010, then I guess the book, because it's about... 2007, the book. 2007, there you go. It would be set during the Brown era. Because I kind of watched it thinking, oh yeah, it's like a Cameron government. But no, you're you're absolutely right about Mm. that. And it's very interesting that at one point they're talking about the countries that don't sign up to the International Criminal Court. And obviously there's like the despotic ones you'd expect, the United States and so on. Then they're like, oh, (laughs) oh, and several countries in Africa. What they don't mention is that war criminals from Africa are the only fucking people the International Criminal Court ever does prosecute. Right. 
I don't, yeah. I don't think there's any precedent for what they do to Tony Blair here or to uh, Adam Lang. And more so, it's not even just that the international order seems to actually work. It's that when the international media reports on it, they do so in very grave terms. Like we see clips from like Sky News and something that's kind of supposed to be CNN or whatever. And they're just very gravely reporting the news that this former British prime minister is being prosecuted criminally as if that would ever happen. I mean, if only, right? But that is definitely not what the vibe was in 2007 or 2010. You know, it'd be nice to think that Tony Blair was getting protested by massive groups of people wherever he went in the United States especially, but that was definitely not the case. I mean, maybe now, like it would be more controversial to book Tony Blair now since he makes a living like advising dictators on how to spin things when their security services like massacre dissidents or whatever yeah. it is. You know, since he bills 50 grand an hour to do that, he's more controversial to book now. But you did not have massive crowds of protesters greeting him wherever he went and like protesting outside his home in the mid to late 2000s. And the film would be less fantastical, unfortunately, if it was literally about a ghost. Something that I like about the movie, though, and it's consistent with a lot of Polanski's movies, is this general free-floating, maybe formless and not particularly ideological paranoia and distrust of authority. The Tony Blair character in this is depicted as basically a pawn of a greater world order. Cucked by the CIA. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I didn't come up with that. I know Yair kind of made a cucked by the CIA comment earlier as well, but our friend Boyd (laughs) PTG, very influential left Twitter figure Uh, in the UK that is he famously described this film as where Blair gets cucked by the CIA but we'll continue he also gets cucked by Ewan McGregor (laughs) oh yeah that's true he does literally get cucked by Ewan McGregor that was actually what I was referring to Yeah. oh yeah you're right I like your interpretation too (laughs) sounds smarter in this film man (laughs) it's all round Can I just highlight that the original casting for the film, when it was first cast, there were delays to production for a few months, and that's how Ewan McGregor ended up taking a role. It was originally meant to be Nick Cage. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been wild. That would. I want. I want to. I want to see that film. I think Ewan McGregor was the right casting because Ewan McGregor, he's charismatic, I suppose, but he's a much kind of lighter i guess more of an everyman mm-hmm. presence on screen to he's a fault i think because he's like oh yeah i don't read political memoirs i'm a normal bloke me you know it's, <laughs> yeah. it's overegged a little bit i feel but I, yeah you're right it's part of the character <laughs> but i feel a lot of big name actors would that would have been even more implausible he kind of brings a certain naivety to it. Nicholas Cage, I'm a normal guy. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's important that Ewan McGregor is not more charismatic than Pierce Brosnan, you know? Mm. Like, like he's got to come across as a guy who is, like, floating in the wind between all of these much more powerful people. I'm not sure if... I think Nicholas Cage is a much more aggressive and powerful screen presence than McGregor. (laughs) Definitely. Uh, But something I was going to say is, like, I like how this movie ends on this note similar to how Chinatown ends, where it's like, you you can't fight City Hall, basically. The dice is loaded. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. You literally expect one of the people on screen to just be like, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Like, I bet one of the actors literally muttered it under their breath. (laughs) Probably Jim Belushi. That's a sentiment that only feels more contemporary now than it did when this movie was made 10 years ago. I think the idea that 
our elected leaders are, are not really the elected leaders and that they're all serving interests that are not ours is a much more popular idea now than it was then. Yeah, this is a very like 70s style conspiracy thriller, which is a subgenre that I really love. They don't make them like this anymore, really. I guess you do have to get a kind of older filmmaker to really channel that same paranoia of, you know, films. Like, I guess Chinatown was his own addition to that canon. But, you know, real classics like The Boys from Brazil. Or no, like, really, like, All the President's Men or Three Days of a Condor. The Parallax View, which have some fucking stupid elements to them, the latter two at least, but they're still really good films. There's just that total distrust of authority. I kept waiting to find out that the actual overarching scheme was that all these guys were on Jeffrey Epstein's island. Tom Wilkinson and Nicholas, and not Nicholas Cage, Pierce Brosnan and Pierce Brosnan's wife were all on the Lolita Express and that was the scheme that Ewan McGregor was going to uncover. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying, he's literally got Ghislaine in it. I watched the four-hour Epstein documentary, and I've listened to plenty of episodes of Truanon, and that's basically the sum total of my Epstein knowledge. But the way that Ghislaine is described in all of that stuff, Ghislaine Maxwell, that's obviously like Epstein's girlfriend at one point, and kind of like second-in-command in his twisted network, and the daughter of Robert Maxwell, the British media tycoon, and... So Truanon keeps saying Israeli super spy, but I think maybe one of the conspiracy theories around her is that she was like Epstein's handler. In this, he's working in the interests the whole time, the twist is. Tony Blair has been working for the CIA without knowing it, and his wife is basically pulling the strings. She's basically his handler but he doesn't even know it. And her handler is Tom Wilkinson. This is the thing that makes the film very good drama and also not very good politics. I think this film is an extremely entertaining one. I really like the way that it portrays, you know, we've talked about the decision to cast Pierce Brosnan already, but it's, I love the way that Blair is portrayed just as this bumbling idiot, because the thing that, the thing that always has struck me about Blair, I think like a lot of neoliberal politicians, especially in the nineties were like this, these people that had this kind of evangelical conviction towards a bunch of really simplistic ideas and just clearly don't strike you as having like any real inner life or any kind of deep intellect, their entire mm. project ideologically is based based on repudiating big ideas. It's like, well, we tried big ideas, and if you do big ideas, you get Nazi Germany or the USSR. So liberalism is the only idea left standing, and it's a stupid one, but it's the best thing we have, or whatever. Brosnan perfectly projects the type of bland conviction that the politicians who kind of ushered in that era tended to have. And, you know, it's very funny, too, and the drama is very much made more exciting by the fact that he is just this pawn of the Olivia Williams character. But because this movie is actually about Tony Blair, I mean, that's not actually a very good, you know, like Tony Blair came by his desire to be a pawn of American CIA. neocons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he came by that, honestly, yeah. you know, and he came by his, I mean, think about the implications of a world where an American deep state agent infiltrated the Labour Party in the 70s and then became the puppet master to this future labor leader. It doesn't just mean that the Labor Party backed the Iraq war in government and, you know, backed George Bush. It also means that new labor itself is a kind of appendage of the CIA. 
And again... That is what uh, I like about the film in, in great part. I mean, I, I like that as, as, not that it's her as a narrative strings, device, but it's, but but it's not... But New Labour is a CIA front. <laughs> I mean, I love, yeah. that, I love that as a narrative device. I think I like it less as an actual explanation for that, although mostly it doesn't matter because this is not actually a criticism of the film as a thing you sit and watch and enjoy. Just what always strikes me about it is that I both love its portrayal of Tony Blair and also find it kind of a limited one for those reasons. I mean, it robs him of like a hell of a lot of agency in what he's done. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I did feel like it was a little bit of a weird cop-out politically, but dramatically it totally works, like you were saying. Like, I don't want to blame Cherie Blair for Tony Blair's war crimes, you know what I mean, in real life? I mean, everyone (laughs) says Cherie's more left-wing than Tony, but I mean, she can't be that left-wing. I'm not saying she's left-wing, but she... (laughs) wasn't prime minister you know (laughs) no i mean i don't yeah i don't think polanski or harris are seriously alleging that sharif no 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 tony Tony blair's cia handler but like luke said tony blair's sympathies with american foreign policy were his yeah he wanted to serve the interests of american empire that was what his politics were his special relationship and everything yeah but i mean it's a really terrific performance by olivia williams as galay i thought yeah because uh, <laughs> she's, she's so just this like powerful person but a powerful person who's not in the public eye so much and i love how she plays up you know there's the scene where her and uh Oon mcgregor are having dinner and she plays up like nobody ever thinks of me i'm just a political wife i'm an appendage and he's saying oh, i'll write you into the book and she's like oh that's kind of you and she's very contemptuous of it as the viewer the first time you're seeing this movie you would never guess how the film ends based on her performance it's incredible oh definitely sure Uh, i think like when i watched the film before i was probably like yeah she's a girl boss man like she's the real power behind the throne but like I don't know, she does treat people like shit and stuff, so she's like, she, that's what kind of where I saw the Ghislaine Maxwell, all the sort of like manipulative, the turning on you on a dime behavior that people have described about her, which I've not No, I, I agree with your but... original thesis that the Olivia Williams character is a total girl boss and awesome. I, I, I think she's great. <laughs> well, I mean, Did nothing but, wrong, but, innocent. But, but you're a member of the CIA, so you would say, no. <laughs> you're not supposed to say that on my Hire or women guards <laughs> guards for what like guards for tony blair guards for ex-british prime ministers <laughs> what you were saying earlier luke about tony blair and it feels slightly untrue that wherever he goes he's hounded by people i do think with most ex-british prime ministers it's probably true you know margaret thatcher couldn't just take an afternoon stroll through an ex-mining town but well, not anymore <laughs> certainly most British <laughs> politicians who step back from the front line, I feel like, are more like other people after leaving office than Tony Blair is. He is much mm. more like an ex-American president than he is like an ex-British prime minister. Gordon Brown can probably like go to his local shop sometimes i don't think blair has been to the shop since like he became leader of the labor party and that's not an evaluation of someone's <coughs> politic but i think it articulates how he is such a detached individual he got so high up 
until he became this kind of international figure. And I feel like Blair, not just ex-mining towns like Thatcher, I feel like Blair couldn't, like, take a walk. Well, he definitely wouldn't take a walk anywhere without security detail. But even Ooh. then, he couldn't just, like, go through, like, an urban area without people calling him a war criminal. Well, I like how that's kind of portrayed in the film, where the Blair figure, he's in some remote part of New England or something. Yeah, and he just I mean, has... obviously, it's all shot on the European continent, because Polanski directed the film. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right. But it's meant to be New Hampshire, I don't know, somewhere like that, or Maine, or, you know, I don't know, maybe somewhere off Long Island, possibly, somewhere like that. But he's portrayed as a guy who lives in a sort of gated compound where the only people he has left are this coterie of loyalists, like the Kim Cattrall character who's just been somebody who's dutifully his servant and just does not think critically about what he does at all. I mean, that... I, hates her. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I don't have trouble picturing that as a reasonable representation of Tony Blair's existence. Even I love the design of the house, that it's just this extremely minimalist, like everything very Spartan, empty space for an empty man. Polanski has always been a very skillful conceiver and director of space in film. The Brosnan character is living on this seaside resort seemingly that seems so wide open and yet every shot makes it look like a prison i'm particularly thinking of that one shot where brosnan is leaning against this floor-to-ceiling window looking out at this vast beach and the beach seems to almost like close in on him few directors would be able to make a space look simultaneously so vast and also so isolated and so prison-like the island, yeah, it feels like fucking Alcatraz. It's so bleak. If I was as spectacularly wealthy from all the after-dinner speeches and advisory roles in despotic regimes as Tony Blair is, I would definitely not want to live in a <laughs> shithole like this because it just looks overcast like every day there's, there's like nothing there it's just all like wilderness and again it's like brilliantly staged by Polanski but I would not choose to make that yeah. one, like super villain lair <laughs> something I just remembered which I think really speaks to Jack what you were saying about how Blair became this kind of international figure who's different from other ex-British prime ministers I think because he was kind of a hit in America. I remember seeing Blair being interviewed on, I think, CNN, I think by Wolf Blitzer or someone like that, probably in about 2010, 2011. And I don't remember anything about what the actual substance of the interview was. But what I do remember is that Blitzer or whoever was interviewing Blair ended by saying, thank you for joining us, Prime Minister. Which, I mean, it's a very American thing, right? In the United States, if you're the president, then that's a title you have for life. It's like a meritocratic regal title that you, yeah. you earn. And that's not a feature of parliamentary democracies. Like ex-Canadian prime ministers, if Stephen Harper was being interviewed anywhere, no one would call him prime minister. And what I love about that is I feel like it kind of quietly speaks to how Blair was kind of an Americanized figure, even at that point, that he was being referred to. I mean, it's also, you know, maybe your American news people are just ignorant that they don't do that in Britain. But it always stuck in my memory because there seemed something so very slightly off about referring to ex-Prime Minister Tony Blair as Prime Minister, as if that's like some title that you carry with you like being an ex-president. 
Yeah, I think Blair himself, he's definitely leaned into this ex-president vibe. He's gone out of his way to make himself this unknowable, distant figure since leaving office. And you know, I'm, I'm not shedding any tears for ordinary people not having speed dial access to Tony Blair. Because he does actually seem to be around still, because he does a fucking Sky News interview like every month. Mm. Or Newsnight. They're like, today there was we a have few Tony year- Blair on, because there's nothing else on. There was a good few years where he didn't really do much like that at all, and interviews with him in Britain were incredibly rare. And then it was probably around sort of 2015, 2016 yeah, time. Yeah, when, when he, Corbyn became yeah, leader. He would pop up to moan about Brexit, to moan about Corbyn, to moan about Corbyn's approach to Brexit, and since then he's been semi-regular again. And uh, Tell people to vote Lib Dem. <laughs> <laughs> Tell people even, to vote Tory in, in some cases. You I know? don't even get how news night justify it though because it's like like i said it's every month yeah we have a major interview with tony blair and his first major intervention in british politics since yesterday and then it's always like 20 minutes of a fucking episode of Newsnight, which is an hour-long show it's always like the centerpiece interview and it's like he's not done anything <laughs> he's got no, he's literally you could interview like any old cunt about the news and they'd have like the same take as well <laughs> like the same level that's of the other 40 minutes of news night to be fair though <laughs> well oh yeah any old cunt but it's always the same old cunts it's always like whoever is, is a newspaper columnist yeah i assume tony blair carries some of the same aura that somebody like Obama or Bill Clinton carries in the United States where it's like well because he did like win at one point and win big it's yeah. still this like lingering feeling of like well this guy's got to have the secret sauce somewhere right it's a much narrower coalition of people making that yeah. case like yeah, centrists yeah, do exactly that but outside of hardcore centrist types Everyone from all sorts of varied backgrounds and political opinions fucking despise the man. Yeah, he's probably hates second him. only. To it does Thatcher. also help that he was surrounded by even worse leaders in a lot of ways. That's true. <laughs> like yeah. So, so, so now, well, now some people over here launder Blair in the same way that <coughs> yeah. liberals in the U.S. launder George Bush. Now it's obviously yeah. disgusting. <laughs> Someone like there's this guy called Ian Dunn who he was like pro Brexit <laughs> and then Brexit <laughs> happened and now he's like. Oh, Brexit. He's just made his whole brand being against Brexit. He used to be really against Tony Blair, but he's obviously realised that to like target the kind of EU obsessive freaks that he he wants to be his audience, he's got to love Tony Blair. And so now he's always saying, "Oh, I really miss Blair. It would be great to have like a grown up in the room." But aside from like him and that tiny like coterie of absolute melts, like nobody likes Blair. But for those people, yeah, he is basically like Obama. It's just a fraction of the actual percentage of the population that sure. it is in America. Well, something else I like about the Ghostwriter is how the Tony Blair character is this completely disgraced and hated figure. <laughs> nobody likes him and yet he still sort of carries around this air of importance and this air of being somebody who has to do like big photo ops and talk to the press almost like this <laughs> lingering residue of a time when he was once important and loved that never fully yeah. goes away that's part of it is that all the people who do think he's a fucking legend they all work in the media or like right. in politics itself so yep. like the influence brokers are still giving him loads of opportunities but if they were in any way representative of actual public <laughs> he would be not doing Sorry. things 
he would be out of the picture completely, basically. There's an interesting part of the film that I think probably comes from the novel without having bothered to read it, just because of Robert Harris's own background. But the fact that almost the lead protester character, the lead anti-Blair guy, the guy whose kid had died in one of his wars, was very much not your typical anti-centrist protester. The fact that they've got this sort of broad coalition of people who fucking hate him and the ones (laughs) it highlights on camera are coded as comfortable middle-class, middle-aged people. There's maybe almost a self-insert with Robert Harris there as someone who would usually be absolutely fine with this sort of thing, very comfortable with the British establishment. But it's betrayed me, so time to turn on it. I think given what happens with that character, it's quite funny if it it is a self-insert of the author, but he was a proper hardcore donor to New Labour until the war in Iraq. And even then he's sort of joked about when they've fallen out and it doesn't seem to be like a proper bit of falling out so much as I disagree with him now. But a lot of it, as we said, is kind of faintly ridiculous in terms of how it relates to real politics. But that bit kind of works in that there is a really weird thing in that people that aren't hugely political or at least radical in their politics in Britain tend to pick out the odd thing that they really don't take to and it sort of builds these weird coalitions of protesters and this sort of thing. Obviously at the moment with absurd amounts of people dying of coronavirus here because the government's managed it so badly, you've seen a lot of people in the same vein as well-off people that turned on Blair for Iraq. You've got people focusing on Dominic Cummins, Boris Johnson's main advisor, breaking the curfew. But like, it's like um, the personalisation of politics. Yes, they'll focus on an aspect like that and be like... I suddenly can't deal with it at all now. And then once that's resolved, if Cummings gets punted or resigns in the next few weeks, which he won't, or if Tony Blair had admitted, I'm wrong about Iraq, I'm stepping down at the next election at the time, or something like that, or if he'd pulled troops back earlier or something like that, these people would have been like, okay, good, we've got what we wanted, we support the establishment again and everything. There's no sort of structural critique there, even though they're often, in the moment, the angriest protesters about it. Well, Harris's quote that's at least on his Wikipedia page about the war in Iraq is that it made no sense to me. So, like, if, (laughs) if, like, Blair had been like, we're withdrawing from Iraq, Mm -hmm. Harris would have been like, ah, yes, I understand those words, and then they would have been friends again. Yeah, there's no real anger comes through in that. It's more slight disillusionment and confusion. Um, You mentioned the protester who shoots Blair. And was he definitely an actual protester and not hired by the CIA to shoot Blair? Because Cherie slash Ghislaine does not seem like that upset that he's dead at the end. I mean, I guess she's had some time to process it. No, because the book comes out like two weeks after his death. <laughs> yeah, literally, they're all still mourning when they come into the book launch, when she's yeah. a big speech. Oh, my murdered husband, he was brilliant, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, and that guy... <laughs> Too bad he can't be here to give the speech. <laughs> yeah, are we sure that that I mean, guy was an actual... I mean, I guess I think his it works either way, doesn't it? Well, maybe he was set up by the CIA. He was cut like Tony. <laughs> to be fair, I think it's it's quite well done. It's, it's set up that it could be a plot all along, that it could have been set up as a Patsy by design. Could a Patsy been... like Patsy Klein. <laughs> <laughs> or it could have been just that they've deliberately set up a situation with the war crimes charge that they knew would make people so something angry like that, that, it, that it could yeah. make something like that more likely. Mm. That's probably quite well done, but regardless, the fact someone like that from that sort of background would be like leading the protests, you know? Uh, it's not something 
you'd really see for any of the other reasons people turned on Blair at various points. Yeah, um, I feel like that guy was the CIA asset. I know yeah, it's a conspiracy yeah. thriller and you know, no, nothing <laughs> is certain. Thinking about it, it's, it's definitely a strong possibility. Yeah. Beautiful quote from that same Robert Harris Wikipedia page, by the way. <laughs> Formerly a donor to the Labour Party, he renounced his support for the party after the appointment of Guardian journalist Seamus Milne as its communications <laughs> director <laughs> by leader Jeremy Corbyn. In March, the spokesman for the leader of the opposition, Mr Seamus Milne, was quoted as saying to journalists that you have the milk that is taken from cows in the south and taken from cows in the north, put together in the same factory and then it is mixed together with whiskey and it comes out as milk. He now supports the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> I, I clicked through to the oh, Telegraph God. article. Idiot. There's actually the specific quote from him that he tweeted out at the time, referring to himself, council house born, comprehensive school educated, voted foot, Kinnock, but not for private school apologists for IRA and Stalin, sorry. <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> so, that's such like mindless right wing shit. Like I guess this guy. Yeah. I mean, I was gonna say supposedly an intellectual, but he writes like airport novels. But I mean, no, I mean he's like fairly widely respected by some. But he is just like politically an idiot. And when he's grandstanding about Corbyn, you just gotta say, mate, you're like a three-time collaborator with Roman Polanski. <laughs> that just yeah. does take away a little bit of his credibility, I think. He's literally written Polanski's new film, J'accuse. It's um, like you come for Seamus Milne, you come to cancel Seamus Milne, well, buddy, we're going to cancel you. Well, that's it, you know. I bet he'd have something. If he was talking about like some kind of dodgy figure on the left, like George Galloway or something, he'd be like, you said disgusting things about women. Anyway, Roman and I were talking. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it's just like, he, he does just seem like a bit of an oblivious, posh twit. Like I, this... I said, I meant to say cunt there, but twit is really appropriate for what he also, is. It's also it's a lot harsher a slur in North America than it is in the UK. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. <laughs> is it? What? Yeah. Twit? No, no, the other one. <laughs> oh, guns, yeah. yeah. I, I, was, I, was, I was just going to say, you know what the Seamus Milne obsession... This has, like, got nothing to do with the film, but now that we're on a Seamus Milne kick here, <laughs> the weird obsession with Seamus Milne in parts of the British media, like, the idea that somebody was like, I'm never voting Labour again because Seamus Milne is helping Jeremy Corbyn prep for PMQs or whatever. You know what that reminds me of is, if you all followed the American election, particularly on Twitter, the Democratic primary specifically... The extremely bizarre obsession that centrist pundits and media figures have with David Sirota and Brianna Gray, who mm, worked for yeah. Bernie Sanders, yes. where it's like this phenomenon of people that work in the media hating that sort of two figures who are nominally from within the media don't abide by the right etiquette. Like, and yeah. Milne is like that as mm. well. It's like, but if you're in the media, you're supposed to be like us, i.e. completely bland and never wanting to make any trouble or cause yeah. any problems for anyone with power or ever like speaking your opinion. It's like, I think a very, I've never made that parallel until just now but the bizarre obsession with Seamus Milne mm -hmm. feels exactly like that 
Well, I it's very d- true. As well, d- despite not being quite as radical in many ways as Seamus Milne or the figures on Sanders' staff that you mentioned, you see a lot of it on Twitter from within journalism toward Owen Jones, simply for being oh, yeah. a high-profile left-wing guy. Any story these journalists are mad about for any reason they will find a way to be like, yeah. this is because of Owen Jones, he did this, you know? <laughs> it's, I, it's I can't remember insane. which British centrist moron it was <laughs> had this tweet. I mean, there's so many, right? But there was one that had this tweet shortly after the election where they were tagging all these people that hijacked the Labour Party. I can't wait till we're rid of them. And it's like, you know, Ash Sarkar, Aaron Bastani, Owen Jones, Matt Zarb, just listing off left-wing Anyone left-wing journal- I can think yeah, of. Yeah, right. And it's yeah. like, These people were happy Labour lost the election. And the thing that made them happiest was these people that make my professional space a little bit uncomfortable because they make me question what I'm doing. Well, we're going to be rid of them. We're not going to see them on like Mm -hmm. the BBC anymore. Anyway, this has nothing to do with the film, but I apologize for starting this digression. To bring it back, one of the things that (laughs) these people hate people like Seamus Milne so much for going off the standard journalist script on is the Iraq War and the Blair administration. Well, okay, I used an American term there, which Tony himself would be very pleased with, because he (laughs) did see it as a kind of presidential administration. But the portrayal of the media, as I think Luke mentioned earlier in this film, doesn't quite ring true in that Blair's war crimes are like front page news on every newspaper. Like at one point, he's on a first class flight to New York, paid for by the publishing company, and they're like, do you want a paper, sir? And he's like, yeah, have you got the Evening Standard? It's like, hey, why the fuck would you want the Evening Standard? It is fucking shit. The only reason it's a popular paper is because it's free. It's handed out for free on the streets of London, and it's always been shit. George Osborne wasn't the editor of it, former right-wing British Chancellor. He wasn't working for it at this point, but it was still just like a shit paper. Mm. And like, presumably, if it's like a first-class plane, they're just like handing out newspapers like candy. So why wouldn't you ask for one that actually costs something and isn't total shit? But I know all British papers are total shit, so I've kind of like argued myself into a corner there. Well, the Owen McGregor character mentions that he's not particularly political, so he probably uh, only reads that one because it is free. And I don't know, do you have comics in newspapers in Britain? Maybe he wants the comics. (laughs) (laughs) We do, unfortunately. We've got a guy called Matt who does cartoons for the Daily Telegraph. Geraint, can you like describe Matt? Okay, so Matt does really kind of simple one-panel satirical cartoons on the day's events that are always just really broad, not very funny. The centrists like to do a kind of ironic, oh, Matt's nailed it again sort of thing. Even they don't particularly rate him, (laughs) reading between the lines. But it came out a few years ago. With all our... Every British print newspaper is struggling to varying extents, and the ones that are doing okay are doing it through just rinsing dark online numbers like the Mail Online and stuff. But... It came out that they've been cutting jobs left, right, and centre. Sorry, is it the Times or the Telegraph, Matt's at? Telegraph. Telegraph, yeah, yeah. So the Telegraph had really been struggling sales-wise. They'd been cutting mid-level journalists left, right, and centre. And it got leaked that Matt, the cartoonist that everyone takes the piss out of, was on an obscene salary. 650 grand a year. That is almost £2,000 per panel. He is the human version of the Drill Candles tweet. 
They are spending more on their cartoonist than their entire political and investigative departments combined. (laughs) And I think you can read that in the paper, you know, you can feel it radiating off the pages. But an example of a Matt cartoon, there's just two people like having pints and what looks like a packet of crisps at the pub. I took my girlfriend to Paris, the caption reads. I got sunstroke and she ran off with the paramedic who treated me. I don't even understand what the joke is supposed to be there. Not a lot to grab a hold of, is there? The the one panel. Yeah, it's just tragedy. They're single panel cartoons and they've got so much text in them. So there's one and the daily cartoon. (laughs) There's a sign that says treasury. So you know who the guy is, right? He's the guy that works for the treasury. And then there's a bigger sign that says coronavirus. Try not to put your head in your hands after looking at the latest economic figures. It's, oh. it's, one, it's one guy looking at that sign, looking a bit disappointed. That's it. That's the cartoon. Oh, like, do you guys that... know Andy Borowitz? He's the American version of this. He's in the I New Yorker. I think I've heard uh, you guys talk about uh, him. Oh my God. Okay. So if you guys ever want to laugh, if you search the Borowitz report, this is a guy where his entire art, and I'm using that in scare quotes, is just all the headline. And so, you know, I'm just making this up. A typical Borowitz headline would be like, Donald Trump to Kim Jong-un, what's your secret? So I'm now on the actual Borowitz page. I'm just gonna read you a couple of, these are just Borowitz's latest headlines. I did not have this prepared. I'm not making these up. This is what is on there right now in the esteemed New Yorker. Trump's bleach moment now seeming like career high point. Take that, That's one. Trump says inspection revealed bunker was dusty because Obama never used it. Uh, okay. Uh, oh, study. We don't be at brunch right now, guys. That's <laughs> right. Oh my. Okay, this is the worst one. Every single one is the worst one yet. <laughs> study. Many of nation's problems could be solved by having a president. Oh, um, uh-huh. it's over, Trump. Take that. Orange man. Anyway, like, <laughs> oh, these are bad. There, these are really a, fucking bad. <laughs> there was just dragging this conversation, kicking and screaming back to the ghostwriter. There was. <laughs> no, don't crowd. do it. <laughs> I was just rewatching uh, on my silent viewing of the film. This is like Keaton level stuff, by the way, guys. Terrific work of 1930s <laughs> cinema. The talkies came in by the 30s, didn't they? I'm a fucking idiot. He finds the secret envelope of CIA stuff or whatever. You know, it's got all the documents of his time back at Cambridge as a young Labour activist. And there he is hanging out with his wife and her handler and so on. And I just really like to see the abbreviation CLP in a major motion picture. You know, Constituency Labour Party. Like, just to see the little caption on one of the documents. It says what CLP he's in, and the caption for a picture on this news article he's got, which is like, 1977 could be Labour's year. I also love that, and I had a similar moment, because when Ewan McGregor is in the pub, and there's that very sketchy guy who it turns out is not staying in the hotel above, who's bothering him. He doesn't want to shoot Blair, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. The news is on and he doesn't want to see it. So he switches it. He tells the bartender, change the channel. And there's a hockey game. And that's a real hockey game. Um, And I I know because it's Jim Hewson doing the commentary, who's like a really popular. He's one of like the two most famous play by play guys 
for Canadian hockey. Like I've literally listened to thousands of hours of him while watching hockey. Um, like me with Will. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you could say Jim Houston is my Will Sloan, but that's just in the uh, that's just in the movie, and I just think that's really cool. That's awesome. I like when that guy walks past you and McGregor, and he just like whispers to him, "Cunt." <laughs> that's a good touch I like the scene where Ewan McGregor finds that picture of Pierce Brosnan and Tom Wilkinson in their school days and yeah. it's like them with like 70s hair photoshopped on them they're all like wearing feather boaters and shit it's such like Oxbridge get ups that they're wearing they're all like just about to do the boat race or something <laughs> where I guess Tom Wilkinson is just whispering in, in uh, Cherie Ghislaine's ear like so first we, we assassin the leader of this country and then well, ha- your husband several decades later have you seen the i think that's actually based on a specific photo of tony blair when he was at university oh is it i was yeah. disappointed was he playing guitar in any of the pictures were there any like ugly rumors not in this specific one but it's that exact same era so he's got the same hair the same general look it's a few hours since i watched it but I, I think that is literally based on the specific photo I don't think any of the other people in the photo were particularly... Uh, they were all in the know, CIA. I, I don't think any of them were like <laughs> that character was based on a specific one of these random weird-looking nerds in the photo. But <laughs> right, it's kind of like if they did a film alleging some major conspiracy around David Cameron and they cast one of the villains of the film to be based on one of the other dickheads in the Bullingdon Club in those famous photos, you know? <laughs> Boris Johnson. But I've just discovered via the Wikipedia page for this film that apparently it's set on Martha's Vineyard, which is some place where rich people live in the United States, in Massachusetts, yeah. An island isolated south of Cape Cod that is known for being an affluent summer colony. And I mainly know Martha's Vineyard. I mean, you hear it referenced a lot by, like, rich people, but... Yeah. Well, it's where this, Obama lives, right? That's it. Yeah, there's this TV movie that Larry David wrote and starred in called Clear History from a few years ago when he was on a break from Kirby Enthusiasm. And that has the weirdest premise, which is like he like sticks up for the working class people of Martha's Vineyard against the rich cunt played by John Hamm. There's also this Jobs Wozniak kind of thing where like Larry's character was the inventor of this tech company, but he walked out over some like Larry David type misunderstanding and now he's kind of poor. Martha's but Vineyard yeah, but... is also where Alan Dershowitz lived because there was that <laughs> oh, no. there was that great run of articles that the New York Times did last year about how all of Alan Dershowitz's friends on Martha's Vineyard were ignoring him and not inviting him to their parties because of well, his he, support he for Trump. He wrote an op-ed, right? He wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, did he not, that was like just complaining about like nobody talks to me anymore. There were also several <laughs> like reported news pieces about this too. Actual news news reportage in the times oh shit you're right dershowitz is such like a skin crawling character and he's so willing to like debase himself like in the epstein Mm -hmm. documentary which might have been where i last heard martha's vineyard reference there's a (laughs) i don't think epstein himself had a place there but he probably went down to dershowitz's but dershowitz appears and he's like i never had sex with an underage person in my life even when i was underage i never had sex with an underage person and it's just like when in The Simpsons, Principal Skinner announces to this huge crowd of people that he's a virgin so that 
he can just like shag Mrs. Krabappel in peace. <laughs> I assumed that Skinner was lying in that. But yeah, that just occurred to me. Dershowitz is a weird guy. So you're telling me this movie was not actually filmed on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> and, and, and why was that? I'm sorry, I, I didn't have time to do any background research. <laughs> Must yeah, just it's... have been because of the cost of filming. I can't think of any possible other reason why it might be. All kidding, didn't, all they kidding. didn't do this in the working class part of Martha's Vineyard. You'd think they'd have quite affordable rates there. But no, it, it seems to be like shot on Alcatraz or something, obviously. It's a bleak hellhole. <laughs> all kidding aside, I can imagine how Polanski would identify with both the Ewan McGregor and the Pierce Brosnan characters. I mean... That free-floating sense of paranoia and that sense that people are out to get me and the sense of confinement and being trapped in by this space obviously recurs throughout his movies and you don't have to be friggin' Sigmund Freud over here to do a psychoanalysis on him and figure out what events in his life have probably led to these being recurring artistic preoccupations. Oh shit, he made this the year after he was like under house arrest for it. He did he did the post production while he was in house arrest, in fact. It was filmed before that. And yeah, the movie was released while he was in house arrest waiting to find out if he would be extradited to the United States. The fact it's not even filmed in America gives it this weird quality, because the principal characters are mainly British, it's about British politics basically, although in an international context, but it's all set in America, and it's filmed in, what, Germany or something? Yeah, and it feels a little bit unreal, mm. and I mean, I, I don't think that hurts the movie. I think it gives the Eyes island... Eyes wide shut kind of stuff. Yeah, it gives the island a nice kind of weird, otherworldly quality. We've probably gone over most of it in the wrong order here. We never really explained the plot. <laughs> Basically, like, Ewan McGregor gets hired. <laughs> Ewan McGregor's character is like, he's this, this kind of hack writer. He ghostwrites magician's biographies, and he gets hired after the previous ghostwriter dies in mysterious circumstances so so it's clearly going to end well to write the memoir of basically tony blair and then while he's out in martha's vineyard writing this memoir he uncovers a web of intrigue and is eventually run over by a car i think that's basically the plot (laughs) <laughs> I do like when yep. he gets run over We talked about that scene earlier Forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown moment But it's kind of off screen He walks out, he's like Fucking owned Cherie He's like, yeah You fucking Yeah, I know you're a CIA agent Ha 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 And he makes her aware of this Like an absolute idiot And then he walks out and is immediately Killed by one of her goons In a hit and run And then the final shot is just the street Returning to normal people, they're like, "Oh shit, is someone dead?" And then they're like, "Yeah, whatever." Yeah, just carry on doing the shit. And all of that rings weirdly true to me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. As the papers billow away with across these pieces of paper, the truth spelled out. Wait, won't one of them just say Ruth, his wife, is a CIA agent? So whoever finds that one piece, well, I hope her goons are on that, actually. They're looking for that one piece of paper where he wrote down what the code actually was in full. They would would just magically discover that all of the War on Terror era cameras that were set up on that street were just just turned off. They just stopped working at that moment. (laughs) There's no camera footage. And there was a weird signal that was disrupting everyone's smartphones so no one could record what was happening. Weird. So there's no documentation (laughs) of the incident. But just a regular hit and run, no doubt. 
I mean, the um, were just having a nap. <laughs> the, the book launch is in London, isn't it? And we know someone that at the time the film was set had lived and worked in London for at least 20 years, a veteran political operator, a big fan of Tony Blair and his government, but still low profile enough to not be a household name, not draw attention to himself with the crowds. I think if we're thinking about who was driving that car, <laughs> I think it might be a certain Ilford MP. <laughs> <laughs> I think Mr. Gapes was on the scene. I think he was the getaway driver, if anyone had, had made, made to attack Cherie Blair, uh, and he saw his opportunity. No, it would just be like Gapes in the passenger seat with Mr. Richard Miller driving. He'd be like, drive oh, on, yeah. Richard! Nobody will touch us! <laughs> He'd absolutely if the police have... take me in, it will be only a matter of hours before the call comes through, and I will be back on the street in no time. <laughs> he just wants the CIA to return his calls again. <laughs> well, another figure in, another widely memed figure in British politics who actually is on record as objecting to this film. Oh, a friend of the show, in fact, yeah. Friend yeah. of the show, another character in Gape Cast, another character, in fact, in a lot of fiction under names such as Dracula, Nosferatu, yeah. the Phantom de Nacht. He basically is this guy from The Independent called John Rental, who describes himself as an ultra-Blairite with a slavish admiration for Tony. And he denounced the film because it was made with financial support from the German government. This is like the hard left agenda of Angela Merkel. <laughs> Once again, <laughs> Rental launched a scathing attack on Polanski, describing the winner of Berlin's Silver Bear, which I guess is his film, as propaganda and a Blair hating movie. <laughs> I just love that phrasing of a Blair-hating movie. There used to be a guy... Well, he's still there, but he's lower profile now. There was an account on Twitter just called Blair Supporter. It's still up. And he, in the early days of British political Twitter, used to just post these obsessive, unhinged screeds about how Tony Blair was good and the idiot British public don't appreciate him. And there was a theory that was first made in jest that it was John Rental's alt. And six or seven years on, none of us have actually been able to debunk that theory. And <laughs> just that phrase there, a Blair-hating movie, if you slagged off Blair on Twitter in those days, this account Blair supporter would immediately add you to like a Twitter list called Very Unbalanced Blair Haters and this sort of thing. <laughs> so I genuinely, genuinely think that this is John Rental because the time span works out as well being in about 2010 or the early noughties. John Rental, I was just going to say, he was the person who I bought the Mike Gapes after the Cold War building on the Alliance's Fabian Society pamphlet from. You know he um, bugged that, right? You know you've got a bug in your house ever since. <laughs> Good, I want him listening to Real Politic all day. <laughs> Every few months when they remember they've got that device in place, they just give their mates a Twitter call, get you banned again. Call in some favours from Jack. <laughs> the lesser Jack. <laughs> yeah, so not everyone was a fan of this film, I think it's fair to say. I wonder if Tony Blair himself ever saw it. I wonder if it was a great dictator type situation where Hitler reportedly enjoyed the film. In some <laughs> I get the impression that Tony Blair probably wouldn't give too much of a shit about them making a film where there was a villainous character that resembled him. 
but it has just been really weirded out by how they treated his wife in it, given that she was also obviously based on his real wife. And... <laughs> they, they keep implying throughout the film that he's having an affair with Kim mm. Cattrall's character, which I presume is why Olivia Williams hates her so much. I have a conspiracy about her, which is that her accent is so bad that she's an American agent as well. I mean, she's clearly not a real Brit. What was her accent? <laughs> it's she, supposed she, to be oh, a British Canadian. accent. She's trying to be, she's like, oh, I worked at number 10 with him for ages. And it's like, uh, no, but is you're she not part CIA. British? How can she not do the accent? I don't get it. Like... <laughs> I briefly forgot what Polanski's wife, Emmanuel Siegner, looked like, and I thought, oh, is that Emmanuel Siegner? She sounds kind of European. <laughs> wow. But yeah, so I guess like... It's just a bad accent. That's all it is. <laughs> if this was truer to life, there'd be a Rupert Murdoch character and a Wendy Deng character who'd like oh, come gosh. to hobnob with Pierce Brosnan and then he'd sneak off for a private conversation with the Wendy Deng character. If it was and closer. She'd write him love notes. <laughs> if it was closer to real life, they'd have set it on a different kind of island altogether. <laughs> That's very true. So, I mean, you know, I don't want to keep you guys forever. Have you got anything more to add on the ghost writer, on Blair, on Polanski, or anything? I think I've said all I want to say about the movie. Good, entertaining movie. Politically kind of weird. The thing that makes it an entertaining movie is also the thing that makes it sort of vulnerable to a strict political interpretation. But as a fantasy about a functioning regime of international law... I like it. <laughs> I think you have to separate the artist from the art and say that while some of Roman Polanski's movies are a little dodgy, you know, not all of them are up to a really high standard. Uh, he may very well be a very nice man. Uh, again, I, I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know a lot about him. I look forward to finding out some more. <laughs> I, I think you're in for a treat, Luke. Uh, sorry, Will. Fuck. How dare you? I can say two hours a week listening to this guy. I don't know his fucking name. <laughs> No, I mean, I really like this film as well, for the most part. I think maybe it loses a bit of steam in the middle section when mm. he's just wandering around Martha's Alcatraz. <laughs> but after that, it picks up the steam as the conspiracy is unfurled at the end. I quite like when Piers Brosnan just mocks him roundly for... Oh, fuck, one more kind of, like, tenuous comparison. But there's this podcast that I've listened to all of recently called Winds of Change. I was kind of enjoying it. It's, like, about... Oh, did the CIA write the Scorpion song, Winds of Change, which was like a big deal in the Eastern Bloc as the Soviet Union was collapsing? A couple of episodes into it, the fucking guy who does it is like, my close friend and producer of this show, one of the guys from Pod Save America, was like, and I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, this is just literally (laughs) CIA propaganda, isn't it? But... At the end, he actually interviews the singer of the Scorpions and he tells the guy about the conspiracy theory that the CIA wrote his song. And although, you know, I kind of suspect that the guy maybe was in cahoots with the CIA in some way, I can't really get into the whole Scorpion CIA conspiracy theory. But um, it's very similar to Piers Brosnan where he's like, what? You think I'm in the CIA? And it's like, has nobody ever suggested this to you on account of, like, your Atlanticist foreign policy or or a vigorous pursuit of a war on terror? I would just add that the movie is spectacularly entertaining, and I was watching it again amazed by how kind of light and fleet it is. There are a lot of directors with only a fraction of Mr. Polanski's talent who I think would make this material a lot more kind of leaden, a lot more serious. And he has the confidence and he has artistry to 
make it a real romp, you know, with that kind of light Alexandra Desplat score. And yeah, mm. few directors are as good at the nuts and bolts of building a scene, building tension in a scene, making a space come alive, all that stuff. It reminded me a little bit of this earlier series of thrillers that Polanski did, including Frantic and, I mean, Bitter Moon is similar. Yeah, it's twisted film and then the death of the maiden to an extent although that's a bit stagier and the ninth gate which is a bit sillier but they've all got some of the same qualities as this film i think and also just one final thing is that it's got a really good cast tom wilkinson's always good to see all the leads are terrific james belushi Jim himself is in it, as Geraint mentioned to me earlier. Note for British politics nerds, Jim Belushi is bald as fuck in this, and he looks loads like right-wing British talk show host Ian Dale. Uh, Ian Dale has this, like, bargain basement political publishing line called Bite Bite Back Back Publishing. Publishing. Yeah, Yeah. and so I spent... Very obvious CIA front. In my head for Blair Novel was being published by Ian Dale's Bite Back Publishing. Uh, but still, good to see Jim Belushi, and finally Eli Wallach as well. Oh yes, really good to see him—a legendary man, as the old man. <laughs> so, thank you so much for coming on the show, Will and Luke. It's been great to have both of you. Oh, thank you, great pleasure. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. Keep up the good work with your own show. It's been terrific. And yeah, if people check out the Ghost Writer or the Ghost, if you enjoy <laughs> the way that we described it today. Good film.
It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing. 